This is Honora. Okay, Dave. You were the mastermind behind the organic bread line, Dave's Killer Bread. It's a brand he created when, as an ex-felon, he couldn't get a job. It made him a role model. Now, that's in question. He also has a violence problem, and a violence problem toward police officers. Here I had gotten out and had this amazing experience of creating a great life and a great business, and then somehow I managed to screw it up again. That's the ultimate bad dream. I had long hair. I had this black trench coat. It fit really good because it was perfect for stashing a sawed-off shotgun. The dope tended to be in some kind of pouch, but the gun was right there at the ready. How did Dave Dahl, a career criminal, in prison until his early 40s, go on to create the world's biggest organic bread company and in the process become a multi-multi-millionaire? I'm Sylvester Stallone, and this is The Comeback. I was like a choir boy, you know, growing up. I, I was like an altar boy, somebody who was very involved in religion, actually believing that it was, you know, this was what I needed to do. This is who I am. My family was uh, Seventh-day Adventists. I, I did well in school. You know, a lot of it was about learning the Bible and learning to be a good citizen. The family business was a small bakery, and when Dave became a teenager, he was told to work there on the weekends, just like his older brother Glenn had done before him. The company was known as Nature Bake. It was a struggling bakery. We worked very hard. We got paid very little, but we were able to, you know, survive. My dad ruled with an iron fist, you know. We disagreed on almost everything. He hated my long hair. He was so mad about it. He hated rock and roll. I would play my Gibson Flying B in my bedroom early in the morning without any amplification. And he would get so pissed. He'd come down there, oh, what are you doing with that rock music? And then I started resisting the whole idea of the religion thing. I, I, I just didn't believe it. And I started actually going praying. I got down on my knees. I prayed because that was what I was taught to do. And asked God to help me make sense of this. Why, why am I having these doubts? All of a sudden, there's just like, okay, if everything's a lie, what's my reason for being here? And what's anybody else's reason for being here? It wasn't just the religion. It was the fact that I was fighting my own insecurities and inability to cope with the world. I eventually realized, and it took me years to realize that I was in a pattern of always running away. Every time I ran away, I was still there, you know. Early on, it was running away from myself and finding drugs that actually helped me uh, do that. Crank was one of the most important experiences of my life. Nobody calls it crank anymore. They tend to call it meth, crystal meth. 
So I was with this girl, and we were doing cocaine, but coke had, had problems, you know. It was, like, very expensive to, to keep it high going, you know. She's like, why don't we do something that is going to last? She brought over this long-haired, Charles Manson-looking guy. He bought us over some crank. She's like, let's, let's snort some of this, right? And he's looking at me going, are you serious? Are you going to take the freaking bus or you want to take the airplane? And uh, <laughs> the first time I ever did crank, I shot it. Well, it comes in a rock form usually when it's good. What you do is you have a spoon and you, you put, say, a quarter gram of it in a spoon. Then you take the rig, the uh, syringe, you throw in enough water to get like a double back. And it's funny coming back to me. Uh, you have to line the, that rig up with your vein and you get a hold of steady and then you push it in. You know, obviously it wasn't a good transformation, but it was something that proved to me that your mind can go other places. <laughs> because, you know, other, all the other drugs that I had ever done never really did that for me. I started to see things totally different. I found that as long as I was doing this drug, I was good. I was like, you know, this was the only way to be from here on out, you know. It just made me feel euphoric. Um, and for a long period of time, uh, it made me competent. Over time, I found out that it actually took my acne away. <laughs> I found that I was getting laid a lot more. You know, my life just changed. And uh, the only thing that suffered more than anything was my relationship with my, my family. couldn't understand how someone like Dave, from a good family background, someone highly empathetic and intelligent, could become a career criminal. We asked Naomi Sidia, an associate professor in criminology, law and society at the University of California, Irvine, for different theories that might explain why Dave became a professional bad guy. It sounds like Dave went through a lot of different transitions in his life that he attributes to um, causing him strain. And there is certainly theories of crime out there that suggest that when a person is under um, enormous pressures and stressors and strains, one way that they cope with those stressors and strains is by committing crime. The one guy that first got me high was the first guy that brought me into the crime world. He was like teaching me how to jockey box breaking into cars. We'd go by this car, look in and see, oh man, that's a badass stereo. There's little Slim Jims and things you can use to get into a car. And he was good at getting them out and not damaging anything. But this kept us high pretty much every day. We don't necessarily think there's a single theory of crime that explains why people commit crime, but rather the patchwork of these different sort of theories and expectations. Drug use and crime often go hand in hand. I met a guy who was a heroin addict. He had this thing where he would go into Fred Meyer. I would drive him. He would go in and walk around, and then he would fill up this 
paper shopping bag full of Nintendo games. And uh, boy, this was, it worked out pretty good for us for a while. You know, it was, it was a way we could stay high and, you know, pay for this and that. The thing was, we got to the point where we're kind of running out of opportunities here. So we started talking about doing armed robberies. That's quite a jump, right? And, but at the time, I'm like, I don't give a fuck, right? My life's fucked anyway. I used to rob drug dealers. I'd find a, a weak spot in a drug dealer's operation, and I just would strong arm them, you know? I would just say, uh, yeah, you know what? You fucked up. You're going to pay. And uh, hand over your purse or backpack, fanny pack, whatever the hell you got, because I'm just taking it. They just would get scared, and that was it. I was a kind of scary guy. Because I didn't stay in any scene for any really long period of time, it was kind of that running away thing again, you know. I was finding a new scene to get into. With multiple warrants out for Dave's arrest, he ran away to a new scene in Detroit. But it didn't take long for the authorities to catch up with him and bring him back to Oregon, where he served his first prison sentence. I sat in prison and I played my guitar and I worked out and was thinking, how am I going to, you know, start up again when I get out? And then I got out. I was driving a late 70s Ford Ranchero. I always loved a Ranchero. I had long hair. I had this black trench coat. I think it was leather. It fit really good because it was perfect for stashing a sawed-off shotgun. The dope tended to be in some, some kind of pouch around my hip, but the gun was right there at the ready. What I would do is go do collections. You know, at that time, I remember I was uh, had this great big Motorola cell phone, which back then, hardly anybody had a cell phone. So it's this long-haired guy with a trench coat and a sawed-off shotgun here and a, a, a pager and a, a, and a cell phone. Somebody would uh, page me, and I would call them back. I would make sure, you know, caller ID, they couldn't tell who was calling them, and then we would rendezvous somewhere. I just had a blast with that. I'm telling you, it was, it was good times. <laughs> okay, so there was like four times I went to prison, right? I just mentioned the first. The second one was armed robbery, actually, in Massachusetts. Wrong place, wrong time, taking them too many chances. The third time was an unarmed robbery, and by this time, people are starting to look at me like, you know, he's a career criminal problem. The likelihood of going back to prison in the United States is very high, and it's quite sobering. Within a year, over 40% are rearrested. Within three years, over two-thirds. I was always getting busted with quite a bit of dope on me, cash, guns sometimes, and getting out again, which was always a surprise. I'm like, okay, how did I do this? How did I get out again? <laughs> and then getting in more trouble. So after my third prison sentence, I felt like I knew what I was doing. My goal was to sell drugs and build up enough cash to kind of start myself in some sort of like real business that was legit. I was having fun, you know, building this empire, if you will. It was like the biggest empire I'd built to that point. I think at one point I was uh, on like a million and a half a year kind of uh, 
you know, level. The fifth time was a September of uh, 97. I didn't even know I was driving a stolen RX-7. <laughs> I, I, I thought I had bought it legit and all that. And I stopped at 7-Eleven, had this girl with me. We both go in to the 7-Eleven right down the street, and we come out, we saw this ATF officer across the way. ATF was not something I was used to seeing, but I knew it was a Fed car, that's what I knew. I got in my car, and looking back, a smart thing would have been, don't go near my car, but I didn't know that. The ATF female officer, she comes up behind me and waddles up to my door, and she says, well, this car's stolen. And I could tell things were gonna get really bad. So I peeled out, did a Huey, went down the street, made a right, went another about a mile, and I had her beat easily. But then I tried to take this corner at a really fast clip and hit a telephone pole. And I had to jump out. I told the girl who was with me, I said, you go that way, <laughs> go this way. <laughs> so they set up a perimeter and they, they pulled a gun on me and like, you stop, or stop. And uh, I'm like, go ahead, shoot me, dude. I'm, I'm fucked. <laughs> you know what I mean? He didn't shoot me. So they just tased me, and it was, it was ugly. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. To make a summary of it, I got arrested five times in three counties. And it was all very traumatic. <laughs> That's what I gotta say. And what they did is they gave me 70 months for assault two, which was mandatory minimum, measure 11. And then they gave me 45 for delivery of controlled substance. It was 118 months. And I was thinking, shit, my life is over, you know? What have I ever accomplished? What have I ever done that matters? Uh, have I ever won the game? No. When things got tough, I would think, okay, what are my options to take myself out? And so I looked around after, you know, I remember it was like a couple years, three years into it, I saw somebody try to take himself out. You know, a big razor is like uh, a real small blade and stuff. And it's surprisingly hard to kill yourself that way. He tried to take himself out by slicing his everything up, every vein he could find up. They're taking him out in a gurney right by myself, bleeding all over the place. And guess what? They saved his ass. Yeah, I'd like to know what happened to that guy. Did he overcome everything or did he just go into shame the rest of his life going on you know how painful is it to have done that and then you have all these scars on you it was just like i can't do this like 
I, I would fuck up a suicide. This is basically how I look at it. I fucked up everything else. And then when I would go to sleep, I would dream. Terrible dreams. The dreams would be like, okay, I got out, and what else was I going to do? I got in trouble and killed somebody, you know? And so I would just dream about the ways I would have to continue to go back and uh, cover up my evidence. I remember even burying bodies. Then these motherfuckers would be coming to pick me up. You know, the sirens and all the shit was happening. Here I am. This is it. I'm done. My life's over. It wasn't like I wanted to kill anybody, but, you know, if you, you get into situations and you, you know, you get to a certain point in criminality and boom, things change. Then um, I would wake up sweating and uh, bolt out of bed and go, oh, God, thank God. I only have five years, six years left to do. I'm okay. You know, it's better than that dream. In crime theories, we often point to a period of time in someone's life that's some sort of catalyzing event that they can point to that was a turning point in their trajectory. You know, maybe in Dave's case, it's this dream that he had or this series of dreams that he had. I I don't remember the exact moment. I wrote a kite, which is an inmate communication form to uh, psych services because I knew there was availability where you could go talk about your, your mental issues and they were able to prescribe medication. I wrote this kite out several times saying, look, I, I just, I want to talk to somebody, you know. I would like some help with my depression. And when I did, it was like the greatest, most uplifting, most cathartic experience of my life. At first, when I did it, I was really surprised what it felt like. It felt so good because I was like, look, I've just done something I can't take back. It was sort of freeing in a way, but I, I still wasn't, it wasn't perfect. It was just like, good, I'm, I'm making, doing something about this. The guy gave me this med, it was almost immediate relief. And I was really surprised that what they gave me actually helped me. When I dropped that kite in the box was probably the moment that I stopped running. And, you know, I was always running from myself. So all of a sudden I'm facing myself and it was the beginning of something amazing, seriously. And I don't know how much of it was that moment that I put that kite in the box, how much it was the meds and how much of it was the the opportunity I went to afterwards was through school. It's a special thing in prison. I mean, to be able to get into a trade program is meaningful. You know, I don't know how to even turn on a computer. I don't know how to operate the basic, most basic things about a computer, basic, basic things about anything. And what's CAD CAM? <laughs> and so uh, it was funny, though. You know, within a couple of weeks, I realized, God, I love this. I realized once I learned to love something, I excel was very, very transformative. So the idea that Dave was able to get into a trade program, you know, might be the opportunity to actually enact that change, coupled with this openness to imagine a different future and a different sort of trajectory. 
In order to change your life, in order to make a better life, you have to own your shit. Okay, accountability is the greatest word I ever learned. I didn't understand it at one point. You know, I was like, oh, accountability, that's what the principle says. <laughs> but uh, for me, accountability was like the most powerful word in the dictionary because now, guess who gets to decide what happens in your life? Wow. How powerful is a human being once they learn the, the, the power of accountability? I had learned in, in some sort of intuitive way how to forgive me, my dad, and everybody else. And that was powerful. So eventually, over time, I realized that my dad was no more or no less than me. You know, he was a human being. And it was the beginning of understanding um, humility. Humility, that, and accountability, those are the two words that I that I clutch. I learned not to blame people because you're just giving up your own power. That's all you're doing. Maybe about a year into the CAD CAM program, I actually started having dreams about baking again. I don't know if it's my identity, but I always knew, I guess, that I had a purpose in baking. I don't, I don't remember who mentioned it first. I think it was me. I said, Glenn, I have sort of dreams of uh, coming back to the, the company. You know, we've been estranged for many years, but I actually can see myself making a difference in the company. When Dave got out of prison, his older brother Glenn was there to pick him up from the bus station. He asked Dave, what would you like to do? And I'm like, uh, hey, you know, the thing I wanted more than anything was a freaking Burger King Whopper, right? <laughs> I used to live on those things back in the day. And he says, yeah, whatever you want. We head up a few blocks away to uh, where the Burger King would be and we got there and it was gone <laughs> that was the first thing i saw i'm like bird king's gone Gravy hole in the freaking ground <laughs> what's that all about but we uh you know that was the beginning with glenn and Glenn and i had been working on this reconciliation and perhaps uh partnership Glenn was really his best to support me uh, coming out. And yeah, I went to live with my mom. and She had a small house with a garage, and that's where I went. And I lived in the garage and slowly but surely working my way into positions at the bakery. The company was known as Nature Bake. They were doing private label uh, co-manufacturing for Trader Joe's, and that was the bread and butter. I think there's about 30 people working at uh, Nature Bake. My brother and, and his people had done a great job of keeping this thing going, but nobody was making a lot of money or, you know, it was like a eh, grind it out business. Uh, they just didn't have that X factor yet. Dave was proving to be reliable and hardworking on the baker's floor. But Glenn saw that Dave was a creative person he challenged Dave to create a new loaf of bread, something that would be hard to replicate by the big guys. So Dave started experimenting. 
You know, I made a lot of bricks at first. Uh, that's what we call them. <laughs> you know, when something's not gonna, something's not, not got any, any softness to it. Uh, you know, people are laughing at me. I'm sure, and you know, thinking oh, this guy, I don't know what he's doing. Well, that's that's part of the process, and you have to be able to be thick-skinned, and you have to work. You have to go. Okay, I'm going to make some mistakes. It's not even mistakes; it's experiments. The first time I took my own creation, which was the mother of killer breads, it was called the blues bread in those days. When I took that out of the oven, it was absolutely beautiful. It was like no other bread you've ever seen. But the the leadership at the company was very resistant to my products. But my brother was smart enough to go, I'm not trying to make something I like, I'm trying to make something that the other people like. And that's what I was aiming for. I give my brother a lot of credit for understanding that it's not about what he thinks. Because you're, you're an old-time baker, and you've got all these like rigid thinking about how bread should be. That's not what we're doing anymore. And he was like, it's called Dave's Bread. There was a, an annual bread fair at that time called the Summer Loaf. And people would come with their artisan breads. I cut up some samples and put them out on the table, and I remember distinctly an older lady trying a sample, then trying another sample, and then another sample. And I thought, okay, well, she's not all impressed. And she walks away, comes back a little while later with a bunch of friends. You know, everybody just, I think she took some samples with her, you know, did that. And I'm just like, this is freaking great, you know. And we just uh, killed it. It's not only the bread, but it was the story. Then within a very, very short time, like within weeks, I was getting media attention. It was just off the hook. And it was my first year out of prison. And that's really what happened. It's how we got started. The name Dave's Killer Bread. Because well, <laughs> you never, I you never were not, it, you never killed anybody, let's be clear. No, please, yeah, <laughs> yeah let's get this straight. Um, I never killed anybody, but to me, killer has always meant the best. The best, as the best. As good as it gets the story, how did it end up on the bag? If you're gonna talk about Dave, what are you gonna do? You gotta tell it like it is. And I actually was very proud of my story at that point, because things had turned around. So it was easy, I wrote the story on the bag to bag. I didn't know how powerful it was gonna be, I just knew that I had to tell my story, and I knew that in marketing, you gotta tell your story. So I worked at Safeway, and so it's early morning. I happened to see him over in one of the checkouts, right? And I got up on my tippy toes and I go, I know who you are. And he says, you know who I am, huh? And I said, you're that bread guy. So then he goes over and he writes this number and he just slides it over to me. And so we went out that night and that was it. Things were looking up for Dave. He'd just met Michelle and was falling for her. His business was thriving and he was celebrated as a local hero, an example of someone who had turned their life around. Unfortunately for Dave, a nascent undiagnosed mental health problem would thrust him back into trouble with the law. The cops came out with their guns drawn and started yelling, out of the car, out of the car, get out of the car. Police are trying to both be the role of punisher and rehabilitator. Those two functions are contradictory. 
now the founder of Dave's Killer Bread is in custody this morning. The Washington County Sheriff's Office says that this was a very serious situation and potentially more charges could be filed once this case goes to a grand jury. We know that right now, Dave Dahl, the co-founder of Dave's Killer Bread, is behind bars. Is Dave Dahl fully reformed? Can you ever really escape a pattern of criminality? Find out in part two of Dave Dahl's comeback story. The Comeback is brought to you by Imperative Entertainment and is created, written, and edited by Giles Andrew and Elliot Watson of Honor Productions. Executive producers are Sylvester Stallone and Braden Aftergood of Balboa Productions, Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment, and Trevor Groth of 30 West. The Comeback is produced by Honor Productions and Balboa Productions in association with 30 West. Original music for the series composed by Dan Powell, sound design and sound mixing also by Dan Powell. Poster design and graphics by Dana Kim and Ricardo Imperial. Special thanks to Dave Dahl, Michelle Baindahl, and Naomi Sugi. Special thanks to Ryan Ibushi, Dawn Bishwal, Alex Witherill, and Charles Denton. Key art photography of Sylvester Stallone by Michael Putnam. Narration engineered by Skylar Kilborn. Please subscribe, download, and share, and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.